Welcome once again. Uh, if you missed the previous announcement, uh, Pastor Art is not here this morning. He is not feeling well, uh, and uh, we, we prayed that he would be feeling better, but in his absence, uh, I was called on to uh, fill in. So if you have uh, a Bible with you, and I hope that you do, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2 is where we're going to be turning. If you need a Bible, we have men in the back with Bibles in their hands that would love to put one in your hand as we study God's Word together. 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you just slip up your hand if you need a Bible, our ushers would love to put one into your hand. 2 Timothy chapter 2, as you're turning there, I want to bring and highlight one more announcement uh, that I missed. Uh, it's the women's Christmas dinner. It's coming up on uh, Friday, December 17th. Uh, there's a small cost associated with that. Um, there will be a sign-up for it, um, but we have already our, our full-color uh, flyer for that um, in the uh, bulletin this morning and also in the uh, information table. So, uh, ladies, if you'd like to mark your calendar or have a visual reminder, this, this will look pretty on your refrigerator. So this is, this is great for that. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Um, we pick up in 2 Timothy, and I say we pick up in 2 Timothy because every time I have the opportunity to fill in for our pastor, uh, I like to just teach the next section so I know where I'm at and where I'm going. Uh, but what that means for us is uh, I need to do some reminding uh, of where we've been and what the book of 2 Timothy is about. Um, so First uh, and Second Timothy are uh, letters written from uh, the Apostle Paul uh, to a, a young protege of his, a pastor, uh, whom he raised up uh, by the name of Timothy. And so that's why they're called First and Second Timothy. Uh, Second Timothy was written after First Timothy. If you understand your number line, that's not new information for you. But it was written towards the end of Paul's life. And while uh, Timothy wasn't uh, too young of a man, he was quite experienced uh, in, in the ministry, uh, and yet Paul found it necessary to exhort him in a variety of ways. And so if you've ever wondered uh, what pastors talk about when pastors get together, you don't have to wonder. You can just read First and Second Timothy and Titus. It will tell you what pastors talk about when they get uh, together. Um, earlier this week, Pastor Art and myself and our wives were at a pastor's conference, and so we got to live uh, these letters out uh, in real life, um, and it's a time of stirring up one another uh, to love and good works, much like we do every Sunday morning, uh, as the scripture commands us to, to not forsake the gathering of ourselves together, uh, but as we do so, do it with the purpose of stirring up one another to love and good works, and uh, as I like to say, pastors are people too, and they need as much stirring, if not sometimes more stirring, than uh, any other believer. Uh, earlier in Second uh, Timothy, uh, Paul exhorted Timothy uh, in chapter 1, verse 6, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you. Another, another translation has it fan into flames, uh, the fire that's already there. Uh, and so uh, the purpose of pastors gathering together and the purpose is, uh, of that kind of fellowship is that um, there would be an increase intensity uh, in the things of God. And uh, the report that I bring back to you from Pastor Art and myself is that's what happened, um, so much so that God had to cut it short by allowing us both to not feel well halfway through it. So anyway, it's enough for you, <laughs> go home. Um, and so uh, we're going to read uh, congregationally uh, from uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 14 through the end of the chapter. Uh, so if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. Second Timothy chapter 2, 
beginning in verse 14. 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. If you would follow along as I read God's word to you out loud, it says, Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words, to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already come to pass, and they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and let every name who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, then uh, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask now as we dive into your word, Lord, that your word would uh, be implanted into our hearts. Lord, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts to receive from you all that you have. Lord, that your word uh, would be all that your word is intended to be for us, a, a light unto our path, a, a light unto our feet, and a, a light unto our path. Lord, that we would know where we stand in light of your word and where to go and what to do in light of your word this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As I was putting together our message, I, I came up with a variety of titles, and so I think the one we landed on for the, the PowerPoint up here is The Standard and the Judge of the Godly. Um, often, especially in the world we live in today, uh, knowing the standard and who the judge is will inform you on whether or not what you're doing is good and acceptable. Um, the way that I would phrase this in questions if I was a teenager is, says who and according to what standard? Right? And so if you were in a, a race or you were playing a game, uh, if you were playing the game of soccer, for instance, and you picked up the ball and started dribbling it down the field, everybody would be like, you can't do that. And you'd be like, says who and according to what standard? And they would have to say, according to the referee, he's the judge. And according to the standard is the, the rule book of, of soccer. Right? It's different than the rule book of basketball, where you're not allowed to just dribble the ball with your feet down the court. That's also against the rules depending on the game. The, the, the standard and the judge matter. And so 
What's the standard and who's the judge of our lives? And uh, the world in which we live in, uh, it's becoming more and more evident uh, that how you answer that question matters significantly. And the Bible here in our passage this morning answers those questions for those who would be servants of God. Uh, I've summarized that whole title in, in the short word of the godly. That is those whose lives are marked by God. And it's marked by God by uh, what their standard is and who they look to as the judge of whether or not they're meeting that standard. Uh, Typically, I like to go through the passage verse by verse and break it up that way, Um, but because of how it's laid out, um, and I I could do it that way, but it would be an hour and a half study, and I've got kids in children's ministry, and uh, so the children's ministry teachers would appreciate if I didn't go an hour and a half, so I've summarized it in a different way, and believe it or not, it'll be faster if we go through it three different times by highlighting certain elements. And the first set of elements we're gonna be looking at are uh, the godly look to God as the judge and his word as the standard. The first thing we're gonna see in this passage that we've already read is that the godly look to God as the judge and the godly look to God's word as the standard. Uh, If you go from one workplace to another workplace, there'll be different standards. Uh, I've, I've gone to a few different workplaces and for the very same action, Uh, they have different ways of doing it. When I was at Long's Drugs back in the day, right across the street, um, they used to call it straightening and facing the shelves. What that meant is you straightened everything on the shelf and then you brought it forward. You you, you brought its face forward so it looked nice. Uh, I left there, I went to Lowe's, and they called it zoning because you're putting it in the right zone, but it's the same action. And then when I came back to CVS after it had become CVS, they don't call it zoning, they call it conditioning. And what that means is if it's in good condition, it looks good. (laughs) It's all the same action, but they have different words and they have uh, different standards of what success looks at, looks like. If I were to have my district manager from a Long's Day and a CVS and a Lowe's all come and look at the same aisle, they're gonna judge it differently because they have different standards. And for the believer, for the godly, the godly, they don't look to their neighbor They don't look to themselves. They don't look to the fallen world. They look to God as the judge, and they look to his word as the standard. Uh, Notice first in verse 14 through 15, and also verse 21, that the godly present themselves to God and submit to God's word. The godly present themselves to God and submit to his word. Verse 14 and 15, and if you would follow along as I read it to you, it says, remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord, not to strive about words, to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He begins with the exhortation to remind them of these things and what those things are are the things that he just wrote beforehand, which for us are a few months in our memory, and I feel the need to remind you of what those things were. (laughs) Not just because Paul said to remind them, but because it's been a while since we've looked at them. And he gives a variety of illustrations of what faithful Christian service looks like. He says it's like uh, an army, uh, a soldier in an army. It's like a farmer. and it's like somebody who competes in athletics. And, and all of those things, the, the common thread through all of those diverse illustrations were that 
Uh, for there to be fruitfulness, there needs to first be faithfulness. And that if there is faithfulness, there will be fruitfulness in the end. Uh, whether that be the focus that the uh, soldier gives or the faithfulness or the competing according to the rules of the uh, um, athlete, all of those things were needed to be spoken. And then Paul says, remind them, which means after you've already known it, you need to hear it again. Um, and notice how this reminder comes. Uh, he describes the method of this reminder um, in verse 14 by saying, charging them before the Lord. Uh, and that word charging sometimes is uh, translated testifying, and other times it's um, exhorting. And, and what it is, or in, in other times it's warning them, saying, hey, this is what the standard is. It'd be like if you saw a coworker doing something that you knew wasn't right, and you knew the district manager was just around the corner and on the way around, like, hey, by the way, <laughs> just so you know, I'm going to remind you of something that you already know, um, but it's a warning. And it's not that, hey, you're not, uh, you're, you're not going to meet my standard. It's, it's the warning, and notice uh, the phrase that's attached to that, because that's the, the part I want to highlight for us. It's charging them before the Lord. That is, this warning and this word is being given in God's presence. It's, it's not just God's command, it's God's command with God standing there. And uh, when we give reminders, when we're in that position of giving that reminder, it's good for the person giving the reminder to know that they're giving that reminder in the presence of the Lord. And for the person hearing that reminder, it's good for them to hear it, hearing it in the presence of the Lord because uh, knowing that the Lord is present, it, it gives birth to humility and boldness for the speaker. I'm not above the things that I'm sharing with you this morning, but I'm speaking the word of God to you. And it's in his presence that I'm doing that. And I'm, I'm saying consistently with what God says, I'm saying to you, and it gives me boldness because it's not my idea, it's not my standard, it's God's word, it's his standard. It's, and it's in his presence I'm declaring that. And as much as I speak this out to you, I sit underneath it as well. And uh, when we're in God's presence being reminded, it, it reminds us to be humble, but it also has, it also gives us hope because we know it's in God's presence that we're being reminded. Uh, we remember that God is gracious and merciful. Notice verse 15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. Uh, to me, we could probably just make that the message for this morning. Uh, everything else would be solved if we did this. To whom do you present yourself in seeking approval? Is it the mirror? Is it your spouse? Is it us here this morning? If it's any of those, it will fall short of the standard of God. Because as the Bible declares, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. When we seek to present ourselves approved to God, we don't just examine the outward appearance. We also examine the condition of our heart because God's examining the condition of our heart. The Bible says everything is naked and open before God, before whom we must give an account. 
There is nothing hidden from God. God will never have a surprise birthday party because he can never be surprised. <laughs> when we sin, we may be surprised that we did that thing again, said that thing again, had that attitude again. God is not surprised. When my uh, youngest son was learning how to walk, every time he fell, I was not surprised. I encouraged him to stand back up again and continue on. <laughs> but he did this thing that is innate in our human existence is he knew how to walk and he was walking around our house for like a good week or two and I took my boys out for some frozen yogurt and uh, we were out enjoying some frozen yogurt and he was walking around and as soon as somebody came out of uh, a store nearby, he looked at them and immediately sat down and started crawling again. Why? Because even at, you know, 17 months, he was concerned about what other people thought about him. He was seeking their approval of his ability to walk. There's no expectation for him to walk, like, amazingly. He's now 18 months. <laughs> right? The, the, the power of seeking the approval of others, ourselves, our spouses, our children, our employer, is, is not a weak thing. It's a powerful thing. But the godly look to God as the judge. And they present themselves to the Lord. A worker who does not need to be ashamed. There's, there's two words there. Approved and unashamed. Needs not to be ashamed. And the godly is capable of doing that. We're going to explore how that happens. Um, but part of that is mentioned right there at the end of the verse, which is the other half of our point here, which is rightly dividing the word of truth. The godly not only presents themselves to God, but also submits to his word. When it talks about rightly dividing the word of truth, um, it's kind of a, a metaphor of uh, cutting something straight, whether that be uh, plowing straight lines. Um, it was also used in, in terms of uh, cutting roads in the Roman Empire, which would probably speak to Paul and Timothy, who traveled lots of roads in the Roman Empire, of straight roads that were cut straight. And it, it has less to do with having a handle on exactly what the Word of God says and more to do with allowing the Word of God to have a handle on you. It's one thing to know exactly what God wants. It's another thing to submit to exactly what God wants. As a young believer, as an immature believer, uh, the, the thing that younger believers struggle with often is understanding and knowing what the will of God is, right? They just don't know. They haven't, they haven't explored God's word to understand God's will. Um, I, I've counseled with new believers who didn't know they shouldn't be uh, living with their boyfriends or girlfriends because that was contrary to God's standard. They, did, they didn't know. That the struggle for them was knowing what the will of God was. But as you mature, the, the struggle of the mature isn't knowing the will of God. It's it's doing the will of God, right? I know what I should be doing. That's not the question here. Are you doing it? That's the question. The person who has the word of God and a perfect understanding is, is not right before the Lord. 
It's the person who does <laughs> the right thing, who is right before the Lord. That will require knowing what the Word of God says, but the, the obedience isn't in the knowing. The obedience is in the doing. Verse 21, we read, um, they are sanctified and useful for the master. Uh, verse 21, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. The godly who presents themselves to God and submits to his word are ready to be used by the Lord, which is the purpose of every believer. And one of my favorite verses to share, I think I share it every time I'm here, so apologies up front, but... Uh, Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. That is, God has a plan for you that's unique to you. I can't do it better than you because that God didn't prepare it for me. He prepared it for you. But it's an option for you to walk in. When it says that you should walk in, that means you, you could not walk in it. But how do you prepare yourself for every good work? being sanctified, cleansing yourself from the past life. It makes you useful to the master and prepared for every good work. Rapidly moving on, uh, my second point out of uh, the godly look to God as the judge and his word as the standard is that the life of the godly reveals that God, uh, they have God as the judge and his word as their standard. Their life will show it. Uh, notice in verse 19, uh, we're told, nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Those who are God, those who are godly, and those who belong to God, and those who have God as their judge and his word as their standard, their lives are marked by repentance. They depart from iniquity. That means where they're at now is still in need of departing from iniquity. First uh, John 1 9 uh, was written to believers, which said, um, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus, when he was teaching his disciples to pray, taught them to pray daily for their sins to be forgiven. God's expectation for you is to fail daily <laughs> and to repent daily. Uh, in speaking with some friends, I reminded them that uh, we have the opportunity to repent daily because we fail all the time. Uh, my son, my oldest son, when he was young and just putting words together, uh, you could tell he grew up in a Christian home because uh, his short little sentence was, I sin all day. It's the theological statement of my oldest when he was about two. That's true. James chapter 3, verse 2, the very first sentence, the, the sentence is a complete thought very first sentence in James chapter 3, verse 2, it says, for we all stumble in many things, period. That's it. <laughs> Which means we all, no matter where we're at, no matter how long we've been walking with the Lord, need to repent daily. We need to do what this says. Uh, not only everyone who names the name of Christ, that's us, but we also depart from iniquity. When we look into the mirror of God's word, and see a shortcoming and a, a fall, we depart from it. We don't argue with it. We acknowledge it, we confess it, and we move on. Verse 21, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself, this is that repentance part, 
they cleanse themselves. Uh, verse 22, they flee youthful lust. Verse 22 also, they pursue righteousness. There's direction in their life that is marked. They run away from certain things. They pursue other things. Uh, it's football season right now, and I, I catch some highlights from time to time. Um, but the, my favorite part of the football game is whenever they're doing a punt return because it illustrates those two commands of fleeing and pursuing. Uh, so if you don't know much about football, one team will kick it off to another team, and they'll catch the ball. And their goal is to get to the end zone of the other side. And if all they knew was they need to take this ball over there, what they needed to pursue, it wouldn't end well for them because there's a whole team that wants to tackle them and just make their day miserable. And if all they do is pursue without fleeing, they're going to get smashed. They won't see it coming, and it will be a highlight reel for the year. If all they know is that there's another team out there that wants to tackle them and they have no idea what they need to do with the ball, they'll just be running in circles. They're running aimlessly, purposefully. They know what they're fleeing, but they have no pursuit. And it's not one or the other, it's both. You need to flee this and pursue that for there to be success. You cannot ignore the thing that needs to be fled from. And you can't ignore the thing that needs to be pursued. When he talks about youthful lusts, he's not just saying to the youth, you need to flee these things. He's, he's talking to Timothy, who's less youthful than he was before. David was about 61 as king when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, but he did not flee youthful lusts. Youthful lusts are the lusts of the youthful that any of us can get entangled in, that every one of us need to flee from. And not only flee from that, we can't just put off something. We need to put on something else, and it's the pursuit of righteousness. That's right living, faith. That's trust in God and his word. Love, that's the attitude that God has toward us and expects us to have toward one another. Peace, and notice that the righteous life is not lived alone. It's with those who call on the name of the Lord, verse 22. You're pursuing these things with those who call on the name of the Lord. There's a, an African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. What that means is if you want to like read through a chapter of your Bible, okay, you can probably do that on your own. You don't have to get together a Facebook group. But if you want to read through the whole Bible next year, which is a challenge that the men's group are, are, are working on together, at the beginning of next year, we're going to try to read through the Bible together. We're going to have some things in the foyer, and I would invite each one of you to come along with us. But it's a come along with us kind of challenge. I can't tell you how many times I've started the read through the Bible in a year challenge on my own and failed. I can't tell you the percentage, though. 100%. <laughs> I have yet to do that successfully because each time I tried to do it by myself. And so now I've gathered a group of guys to hold me accountable, to encourage me, to run alongside with me so that together we can pursue God and his will and understanding of his word. Not only is it seen in how they pursue it with others. Lastly, in verse 24, the servant of the Lord is gentle to all, able to teach and patient. It's, it's evident in their words and their attitude and actions in relationship to others. Last but not least, I want to highlight that the God, how the godly argue. How the godly argue. This is one of my favorite points. How the godly argue, they don't. Uh, I say that with a smile on my face because 
I used to be and, and sometimes may still fall into uh, the category of those who, there's two kinds of people really, those who enjoy arguments for the sake of arguments and those who would rather hear nails on a chalkboard, <laughs> right? Um, my wife nails on a chalkboard for any time there's argument. Uh, family reunions and family reunions for me on my dad's side of the family, it's sport. Argue for the sake of argument to see who can win the argument, and then you argue about who won and who didn't win, and so on and so forth. That's that's the difference. And what he's saying here is that the godly understand that arguing for the sake of arguing is is not something that the godly do. Notice he, he says in a variety of ways. Um, throughout this text. Verse 14, uh, the godly, they don't strive about words. Uh, he says, remind them of these things, charging uh, them before the Lord not to strive about words. The godly shun profane and idle babblings. Verse 16, but shun profane and idle babblings. That means the argument itself, shun it. <laughs> don't have anything to do with it. Turned an intentional blind eye to it. Verse 23, avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. How many times can he say the same thing over and over again? He's like he's trying to tell us something. Maybe that he would grab our attention. Finally, he just says it as plainly as he can in verse 24, that the godly must not quarrel. He says, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel. Just fighting with words, being contentious for the sake of being contentious. That's not what the godly look like. Somebody whose life has got God as their judge and the, his word as their standard doesn't engage in those things. But there's those who oppose the godly, and I get that term out of verse uh, where are we at? Out of verse 25, it says, "In humility, correcting those who are in opposition." So those who oppose the godly have some other standard and some other judge of their life. It's some other standard, right? Like if you go to your friends and you're like, I don't think it's right for uh, a man and a woman to live together before marriage. And they're like, well, I, I think you're wrong. The reason why they think you're wrong is because they have some other judge and some other standard. That's why. God is not their judge and his word is not their standard. That's why they think you're wrong. First, that uh, those who oppose the godly reveal it with their words. Why? Because exactly the opposite of what the godly do, they do. They strive about words, verse 14. They engage in profane and idle babblings, verse 16. They have strayed concerning the truth. And even though some of them might name the name of Christ, verse 19, they do not depart from iniquity. That is, when you call them out on the sin in their life, according to God's word, in his presence, they look at you in the face and they say, God's okay with me living with my girlfriend. God's okay with me cheating on my taxes. God's okay with me saying that I worked hours I didn't work. God's okay with me treating my wife in this way. God's okay with me treating my husband this way. When God's word is very clear, God is not okay with that. And instead of naming the name of Christ and departing in, from iniquity, they name the name of Christ and say their iniquity is okay with God. Those who oppose the godly reveal it with their words. But the impact of the lives of those who oppose the godly is heinous. And I use that word intentionally because of how Paul describes all of the impact of those actions 
verse 14 again, uh, it's without profit and it's to the ruin of the hearers. They ruin those who hear them. They increase ungodliness, verse 16, for they will increase to more ungodliness. Their message will spread like cancer. That word for cancer is in the Greek more along the lines of gangrene, which unless it's cut off and cut out, will consume the entire body. Verse 18, the end of all of their actions is it overthrows the faith of some. That is, if they go on unchecked, if they persist without changing, they're going to overthrow the faith of some. Lastly, I want to highlight their true state. The true state of those who oppose is not that they're the devil himself, but they're captives. Those, the true state of those who oppose is that they're captives. Notice in verse 25, at the end of the verse, it says, uh, in correcting, in the, the goal in correcting them is that they may know the truth because they don't know the truth. The world out there who says it's okay to live this way or to do this thing and genuinely believe that it's okay to live this way or do this thing or have this attitude, it's because they don't know the truth. Verse 26, it says, uh, they are senseless. It says, uh, and that they may come to their senses. If they repent, they're coming to their senses. That means their, their present state is senselessness. Uh, the word could also be translated intoxicated. They're not in their right mind. They're senseless. Verse 26, they are currently snared by the devil. It says again in verse 26 that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, but their present position, where they're at, they have been snared by the devil. You know how they've been snared by the devil? It's because they didn't shun. They didn't run from. They didn't flee youthful lusts. And they were snared by that. They were caught up in it. But it was the devil who has snared them and not only snared them. Verse 26 goes on telling us that the true state of those who oppose the godly is that they have been taken captive by him. That is, they've been taken captive by the devil. I don't know how you look at a person who's clearly lost and opposing you and the godly standard you have and the godly judge you serve. Do you look at them like Paul's describing them here? Ignorant of the truth, senseless, snared by the devil, captive by him to do his will. And ultimately, that's the bottom line. That's the last verse in our chapter here, is they, they've been taken captive by him to do his will. That is the will of the devil. And in, in the end, there is only two wills that are accomplished. Either God's will or the devil's. And as I've reminded you, God has a plan for your life, but he's not the only one. The gifts that God has given you to minister to the body of Christ, the devil has a plan for those. Are you gifted with words and you spend them in arguing to the ruin of the hearers? I imagine Paul can think back to a time in his own life where with his words, 
he ruined the faith of some. And now, with his words, <laughs> he's bolstering the faith of others. Listen, our lives will be used. We are someone's servant. We either serve the Lord, and it's evident because we're seeking to accomplish the will of God for our lives, or we have been snared by the devil, and the bottom line of the life that is godless, of the one who opposes the godly, is that they are accomplishing the will of the devil. That's the true state of those who are lost. Well, Paul doesn't just leave it there, uh, but he specifically instructs us on how the godly are to interact with those who oppose. And we've already covered some of this, so we'll, we'll run through it quickly. And it's, it's in that last section of verses, verse 24 through 26. Let's read it again as a refresher. Verse 24, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. First point of how the godly are to interact with those who oppose is that the godly are not looking to win the argument. Again, the argument was what we were supposed to avoid, right? That, that was a, a mark and a characteristic of the godly's life. With regard to how the godly live, they avoid foolish disputes, they shun profane babblings, they do not strive about words, and they must not quarrel. We already talked about that. They're not looking to win the argument. Notice in verse 25 and 26, they are looking to win the person. And there's a difference. Have you ever won an argument but lost a friend? This is what Paul's talking about. You can be right and be wrong at the same time. You can be right in the truth that you're declaring, but if you're declaring it without love, Paul would describe that as, a, as useful as a clanging cymbal and a sounding gong. Um, I have children. These are noises I hear frequently. <laughs> They're not pleasant. I mean, I enjoy the kids, but, you know, I would not record that, digitally master it, upload it to Apple Music, and hope for, you know, a number one. I would buy it, but I wouldn't expect anybody else to. <laughs> right? Truth separated from love will win an argument. But truth with love will win the person. And that's, that's what the godly are looking to win. They're, the godly are not looking to win the argument. The godly are looking to win the person. Notice what he says, uh, verse 24 and 25, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient. Sometimes it's hard to be patient with those who are, you know, know all of our buttons and just push them for fun. But in addition to the patience, the godly engage those who oppose in humility. Do you know what humility is? I love the definition that one brother has given. Humility is an honest evaluation of yourself presented by an honest presentation of yourself. Webster's Dictionary would define it this way in times past, not currently, but if you look at an older dictionary before we change the meaning of the word humility, it's to be conscious of one's own defects. That means you know what's wrong with yourself. 
when I was teaching this idea to junior hires, I illustrated it in this way. Imagine if you only had one leg and you were sitting down and you went to stand up to go for a walk and you were not conscious that you had one leg. How far would you get? About a half step, right? Because pride goes before the fall, right? Pride is thinking more of yourself than you ought to. Humility is thinking of yourself as you ought to. So when we correct, it is in humility. That is, I see that you are a captive of the devil and you've been snared by him, and I was there too, and but for the grace of God, I would still be there. I am not any better than you. You're not any farther than I have been. You are not outside of the grace or the grasp of God. In humility, that is described in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. I don't know what sins you see in others, but you're not beyond that. The Bible says for us in humility, that is, I don't think I'm any better than you when I'm bringing to you the standard of God that I also submit to. It is, I love you enough to let you know that the Lord is here and he sees, he sees the sin that's there. He sees that you've been taken captive. The godly correct, they bring that righteous standard to that person, that they would know the truth. The godly engage those who oppose, hoping for repentance, knowing that ultimately that's between them and God. I can't repent for you. My wife can't repent for me. My parents can't repent for me. As much as I would love to make the right choices for my children, they must make the choices for themselves. And a right walk with God is between an individual and God. The godly engage knowing that those that they're ministering to are, are captives. There's, there's a compassion there for them. But again, the hope, the hope is that if God perhaps will grant them repentance. Earlier this week, Pastor Art got sick on a mid midweek, but he was not the only one to get sick. Uh, I, I also got a little bit sick myself. Um, we went down to the conference. We got these really amazing, I've never seen any hotel room like this before. I'm pretty sure they were just micro apartments or something because they had a refrigerator and like a whole kitchen and everything. And I was like, wow, I've never had anything this nice in my whole life, which is probably not a standard that's hard to beat. I mean, and uh, there was a coffee maker. So I'm like, all right, let's get some coffee and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have coffee in, in the hotel room. And so my wife and I and uh, Art and Sherry went, did some shopping. Um, we got some coffee, we got some creamer, my wife got her creamer, I had my creamer, and uh, made myself coffee that morning, and uh, like, huh, this tastes a little funny. 
which is not something you normally want to say, but I'm like, you know, it's the little cups of creamer. I'm like, maybe it's just a little different than the, the big thing of creamer. So I'm like, I'll just power through it. And then I'm not sure if you've been there, but if you've been there, you, you know what I'm talking about is as soon as it went down, I was like, that's not good. <laughs> this is going to come back up. <laughs> it's not going to come, it's, it's not going to be short. It's not going to be a long time from now. And I was like, I hope my stomach can hold this down. I really don't like the process. But what went in was not good. And what went in needed to come, it was only down for like 10 minutes. It was back, right back out. It's the quickest food poisoning experience I've ever had in my life. But while it was there and while it was churning in my stomach, I knew that it needed to come out and I was fighting it because I, I didn't want... I didn't like the thought of the process. I knew that at the end it would be good, right? That I would feel better. But here's, here's the deal. Some of us here, within the sound of my voice, are sin sick this morning. It's inside of you. It's churning. And you know it needs to come out. How it comes out is through confession. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. But until we do, it's like David described, it's a weight, it's a burden, it's like that expired creamer in my stomach for the 10 minutes. It was like, we know it's not good, and we may be fighting the process because we don't want to go through the confession of sin. It's it's not pretty. But beloved brothers and sisters, it's necessary. It's what the godly do. It's what those who name the name of Christ do. They depart from iniquity. The Bible says to confess your sins and forsake them. I don't know what sin you're sick of, but I pray that it's churning inside of you now. The Bible would have us to confess and forsake our sins, to, to know the freedom that I knew 20 minutes after my coffee. <laughs> when you take the bad stuff out, it, I can't describe the difference. If you've never given your sins to the Lord, if you've only known the sin-sick life, the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. The Bible says that if we admit that we're a sinner, that we have fallen short of the standard of God, that if we believe that Jesus is the Savior who died for our sins and was raised again, that if we confess, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But if you've been walking with the Lord for a year, or 20 years, you can still be snared by the devil. How you unsnare yourself is through confession. I'm going to invite the worship team back up to lead us through a, a closing song. And as we do, I want you to not look at anyone else but yourself before the Lord, before whom we stand. We can hide nothing from him, he sees it all. He's not surprised. And his desire for you 
is to be in his presence unashamed, approved, because you've sought to be approved in his presence and not the presence of your spouse, not the presence of your pastor, not the presence of all of us here. Don't leave this place sin sick. Confess and forsake and know the joy of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the opportunity you've given us to repent. Lord, you could have just said, if, if you don't do it, then you can't, you can't come in. But Father, you said as often as we need, and your expectation is daily, that we would need to repent. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to repent. Lord, to not have to live sin-sick lives. Lord, I pray as we sing this song, Lord, that we would pour out our hearts to you, receive forgiveness from you, Lord, and know the joy that is in your presence alone. We ask this in your name.